Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, hey, how many of you guys have, a, have ridiculous stories from something you did in high school? Right? Like you can think of just like, how did we not get expelled for that or suspended? Or maybe you did and you're in good company. I don't know. But um, uh, when I was in uh, high school, I think it was my junior year, I had a biology class. And for some reason, our teacher put a cactus on each one of our desks, like a small little cactus. And what we, had, what we did, because in each of the desks fit two people, so it was me and my, my buddy. And because there's obnoxious, ridiculous high school boys, we figured out how to make those little needles from the cactus into little throwable missiles, okay, into little darts. And so here's what we would do. We would grab, the first thing was just to make sure you had the right needle. So you'd kind of make sure they were, they were sharp because some of them were dull. So you'd grab the right needle. And then we had sticky notes, so we'd poke, poke it through the sticky note. And we figured out a way to fold it just right so it was aerodynamic, kind of like a, like a paper airplane. We'd fold it just right. So that was really key. And then you'd have to wait for the right time, which is when Mrs. Jones would turn to write something on the board. So, you know, you've got this thing ready. It's sharp. It's folded just right. And she's like, all right, friends. And she turned, and you're like, and it's a rise you throw it, you know, at one of your buddy's backs um, as they're just sitting there trying to learn biology and get a degree and, you know, go. Anyways, um, and then the last thing is you, you just prayed, God, would this thing stick? You know what I mean? And so you throw it. And I'm telling you, friends, there's nothing more satisfying than that thing landing in someone's back, okay? Like, no, we never threw it at girls, okay? They don't, you know. Uh, but I thought about it. No, I'm just kidding. It's horrible. Um, but you, you, it, it land, and he's just like, Oh, like he just like let this big thing out because it's just so surprising and this sharp like little dart hitting your back. But then you wouldn't want it. Everyone's looking, but he he wouldn't snitch because you don't want to be the guy that snitches. And we love doing it to each other. And so he would just like everyone would be like that was weird, and they would turn back, and he'd slowly just go like I'd pull it out, you know, be like gosh, like that was such a good one. And it was so funny. Why do I tell you that? mainly just because I want you to know I had a fun high school career. So let's jump into Colossians. No, I'm kidding. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and it's active. So the Bible isn't this old, ancient history book. No, it's a living and active word. And it specifically says that it pierces that it pierces our souls. It's not dull. Like, it makes an impact. It goes in. It's supposed to land on people and and impact and stick. And in Colossians 4, in our verses today, Paul is essentially laying out how that word through our mouths and through our lives is actually most effectively going to land on people's lives, right? So it's the proverbial, make sure you got a sharp needle, and here's how to fold the sticky note, and wait for the right time, you better pray that it lands. This is the proverbial walking through. And so what Paul does in here is he lays out five essentials for effective evangelism. Five essentials for effective evangelism. And here they are. We're going to walk through them one by one. But it's prayer, boldness, clarity, congruency, and passion. We're going to walk through each one of those. But I want to make an assumption uh, that I think is fairly accurate and grounded in a lot of conversation and some relational research. I'd argue that a majority of us in the room don't regularly share the gospel. I don't think I'm out on a limb guessing that. I think that for a lot of us, we just don't make it a regular rhythm to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our dorm mates, with our coworkers, with our family, whatever. It just doesn't feel like we do that, which is weird, by the way, because I use this word evangelism, and evangelism just means 
like to share, a bringer of good news, a sharer of good news. And I want you to know that every single one of you, whether you're a Christian or not, you're an evangelist for something. But the question is, what's the good news that you're sharing? That new, sweet Christian clothing brand that you love and you're sharing on your story, or, or that new restaurant that opened up in town, or this new TV show that you love. We are constantly telling people that we love and things that we believe in and things that we think are good. But there's this gap of like, but why aren't we talking about the gospel so fluently and regularly? You know what I mean? So I'm making an assumption that a lot of us in the room don't regularly share the gospel. And I want to help train us as a church on how to do that. And not only do it, but do it effectively. And I think there's another group of our church who actually, praise God, is sharing the gospel. You're making that a regular conversation. But I would argue that for all of us, maybe it's not super effective. Maybe there's ways that we're killing it in some, but not in others. And Paul's going, not only share the gospel, but here's how to do it effectively. And I'm actually going to walk through these five to make sure that we're effectively sharing the good news of Jesus. Amen? So that's where we're going. Let's jump in. Verse 2 in the first part of 3. Colossians chapter 4. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time, pray also for us. So prayer is this first essential, but what we normally fall into is prayerless activity. What we normally fall into is prayerless activity. So with each of these essentials, I'm just going to give a tagline that's hopefully memorable and clear and articulating what we're wanting. So here's the tagline for prayer and then in reverse, prayerless activity, is that if you're talking to people about God, Without talking to God about people, God probably won't talk to people through you. You with me on that, right? It should be convicting and compelling because I feel it this big time, but you see it up there. If you're talking to people about God, without talking to God about people, then God probably won't talk to people through you, right? Now, the whole rest of these verses lays out really a practical, effective evangelism, right? Sharing the gospel. And so it's like, of course you need to be bold. Of course you need to be clear. Of course you need to be congruent. And of course you need to be passionate. Why start with prayer? Let's look. First he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, continue steadfastly communicates two things. Number one, he's assuming that you are currently praying, which if you're anything like me, that should be convicting, right? Because I don't pray as often as I should. And number two, for him to say continue in it would mean that it's not easy to continue to pray. So you need encouragement to keep going. Don't quit, all right? But then here's the key. He says being watchful in it. Being watchful in it. Now, being watchful is actually a military term, and when you see it pop up in the Bible, this word, it's this idea of like being on guard and watching for the enemy, uh, like an overnight thing, like, hey, you take the overnight shift, I'll be on guard, I'll be watchful in it. And what you would do to be watchful is what are you looking for? An enemy, right? Something that could happen, and you're looking for an enemy because you think it's going to come. So why would he start with prayer? in light of being watchful, because we have an enemy, don't we? In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So track with me. We're trying to answer the question of why Paul says that prayer has to be first. But before he goes into how we say things, or why we say things, or what we say, what we say, or who we say it to, he says, be watchful in prayer. Why? Because the people we're sharing the gospel with are currently being blinded, actively being kept from seeing the gospel. 
Think about that. The people that you're about to share with, why would you pray? Well, because Satan is actively blinding them and pulling them away from Jesus. It's crucial for you to understand. You can say the right things in the right way, in the right time, to the right people, but Paul is urging it won't be effective if you don't pray. So question, when are we prone to pray the most? I'm going to argue it's when we have the least control, right? So my little buddy, Haddon, my son, he's like a year and a half, and a couple months ago, he fell down in our backyard, and he scraped his knee, and he was crying, and I picked him up, and I held him. It's going to be all right, buddy. I kissed his knee. We walked inside, and I washed it up, and he was good. Guess what I didn't do? Pray, right? I didn't pray. Now, uh, recently, my wife and I woke up in the middle of the night to Haddon crying. We went in there, and he was burning up. He had 104.8 fever, Okay. Like, we need to take him to the ER fever, okay? And so we give him Tylenol, and I'm holding him, and, I, and, and, and Kristen's calling the nursing line, and she's, what do we need to do? This and that, what could it be? And guess what I did? I prayed like crazy, right? Why? Because I didn't have any control. Because it wasn't a simple, understandable scrape on the knee. This is the thing. I didn't understand what was happening. If it's really deadly or whatever it was, do I need to take him to the ER? All this stuff. We pray the most when we have the least control, Why does that matter in light of what we're talking about? Hear me say this. You have zero power or control to change someone's life. You have zero ability to draw someone to trust in Jesus. You have no power in and of yourselves to convince a dead, darkened heart to see the light of the gospel. You and I can't do it. It's why we pray. This is so important. We're up against Satan, the deceiver, who's deceived people for thousands of years. He knows all the tricks and all the methods, and it's proven successful over and over and over again for thousands of years. And you and I really think that somehow, some way, we can stand up against him and we don't need God's help. There's no way. We don't stand a chance. But you know who's been opening blind eyes for thousands of years? You know who's been saving lost souls? You know who's been redeeming broken lives? Jesus. He's the one that can do it. You know who's infinitely more powerful than Satan? Jesus. That's why we pray. We don't have control over how people respond. Jesus is. Jesus does. This is what we, this is why we pray. So what does this look like? Really practically, pray before you say anything, okay? Pray before you say anything. Uh, it's like, it feels like we come in, we sometimes share, we leave, and then we're like, yeah, yeah, let's pray. Like, awesome, that's good that you pray after. Pray before you say anything. Pray for a soft heart. If it's your neighbor you're sharing with, or your dorm mate, or your, uh, or your coworker, or neighbor, or your family, pray before you say anything. God, open their heart. Soften their heart. Open their ears to hear. Open their eyes to see their sin and your grace and your glory. Do that. Pray before you say anything. Two, pray as you share, okay? So it's like as they're responding, I just usually pray, God, please. I mean, if you, some of you guys might be mad at me, but when you're sharing and I'm meeting with you one-on-one, I am praying for you as we're talking, Jesus, heal. Jesus, move. Jesus, convict. Whatever you want to do. And then pray after you share as well. Don't just leave it at that. Pray, God, would those seeds that were planted be sown And would you make an eternal impact because of them, right? This is really, really important. Bob Walls once told me that when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And it was so profound to think about. Like, this is like the most powerful thing that we can do that's underutilized. But then he also says in here, he ends, uh, and he starts verse 3, and he says, but pray also for us. 
pray also for us. So don't just pray individually, but pray for us. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of my favorite pastors and theologians. Uh, he's been dead for a long time now, but um, he was walking through his infamous ch- his church, right? And he's walking a, a visitor through, and, and, and he's showing him all this stuff, and he tells the visitor, do you want to see the powerhouse of our ministry? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe it's going to be Spurgeon's like extensive library of all these books and these commentaries. Maybe it'll be that. Maybe it'll be his desk that he wrote these famous sermons in. Maybe it'll be the pulpit that he preached from, right? I don't know what it'd be, but guess where he led him? To the basement, to this lower auditorium. And he said, this is where we get our power. When I'm preaching upstairs, hundreds of people are down here praying for the word. Is that crazy to think about? No wonder that God used Spurgeon so effectively because people were praying because that's all we can do. Can you imagine right now preaching and there's just as many people downstairs begging God to soften your hearts to hear, not only for lost people to be saved, but for saved people to be sanctified and changed and obedient to God. I mean, can you imagine what would happen in our church if we actually did that? So don't just pray for when you're personally sharing the gospel, but pray for our church as we share the gospel. Pray during this sermon. God, use this. This is just a broken man communicating God's word that's perfect and and his word's perfect, but I'm broken and you're broken and we're together, but God can do something amazing, so pray. If you're talking to people about God, without talking to God about people, God probably won't talk to people through you, right? Second, second essential is in the uh, middle of verse three. So pray also for us. Why? What? He says that God may open to us a door for the word. He might open to us a door for the word. So the uh, essential right here is boldness. Boldness, uh, that's, it's necessary for effective evangelism. What we normally fall into, though, is timid passivity. And I'm just going to preface this. I think if I were just to, if you guys were like, hey, literally you get 10 minutes, and this is all you get to talk about, I would probably just talk about this point, because I think this is where we fail so hard collectively as a church, where we are timidly passive. So here's the tagline. If you're waiting for gospel opportunities to come to you, you're wasting opportunities that are right in front of you. Okay? Um, Paul says, Pray for an open door for the word. So let's just define what an open door is, because I think that's important. I think we have a different definition than what Paul is saying right here. So in Acts chapter 14, Paul gets stoned. He gets stoned. To, uh, big boulders being thrown at his head, and his body at the moment is so bloodied, is so disfigured, and his body is limp, and they literally say in the text that they thought he was dead. So they had beaten him so hard, they're like, he's dead. And so they leave. But Gotcha, he's not. He played like the possum game. I don't know, but he's like, hey, I'm actually alive. And guess what he does? He goes back and he shares the gospel. And it's this crazy story, but then the church gets back together. And in verse 24 of Acts 14, it says, they declared all that God had done with them. And guess what? How he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Hold on, hold on, hold on. An open door means getting boulders thrown at you. Yeah, that's his definition of an open door. It doesn't stop there. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, here's what Paul says. For a wide door, not just an open door, but a wide open door for effective work has opened to me. Awesome. Let's put it on our coffee mugs. Let's take a mission trip, and let's get it posted on our shirt. Oh, the verse isn't done yet. And there are many adversaries. Wait. So an open door is having a bunch of enemies thrown at you, or, against you and having boulders thrown at you. Exactly. That's what he's saying. Now, let's be honest. How do we define an open door? Someone coming to us, 
hey, I'm really searching for God. Can you tell me about him? That happens once in a lifetime, okay? So if that's happened to you, that's it. You never, I'm sorry to break you, it'll never happen again, right? It's like, but we're waiting for these moments of someone to go, I'm just hungry for, there's something. And I, it's like, those don't happen, right? So let me just, for uh, sake of metaphor, here, here's this door right here. Um, how many of you guys think it's open? How many of you guys think it's open? Uh, raise your hand. Nobody, really. Okay, maybe one. How many of you guys think it's closed? Okay, you guys are a little bit shy to admit. Zach, will you just check if it's open real quick for me? Go check if it's open. Yeah, yeah, go. Yep, you can push it. Oh, so maybe it is open. Right? Thanks, buddy. Give it up for Zach. He's the best. So hold on. You can't tell if a door is open or closed by just looking at it. What do you have to do to twist the handle? You have to push it. You have to give some pressure. You have to actually see if it's open or not. See, we think an open door is when it's actually open. I think God sees it as maybe potentially it looks closed, but you need to give some pressure and find out. Listen, uh, uh, Bob Walls told me when I was in college, one of our biggest tragedies of our Christian lives is that we reject the gospel for people. Oh, yeah, it's closed. Nothing's getting through there. Oh, really? Because I think if you push on it, it's going to open. You need to apply some level of pressure. You need to ask. You need to check. Don't reject the gospel for anybody. Let them reject it for themselves, right? Now, really quick, just funny. Have you ever had a this doesn't seem like an open door moment? Like as you're thinking about your life or your story, have you ever had like a no, this for sure isn't an open door moment? Dead serious. I was on a mission trip with Campus Crusade for Christ in 2012 in San Diego. And uh, Pastor Ethan here, he was leading it. I'm just a punk student for the first time. And I'm, I'm there, I'm hanging out. And my buddies and I were on Mission Beach, so right by the beach, and there's a Burger King. And we walk into the Burger King, and it's my buddy Marcus, Andrew, and me. And as we walk in, Marcus walks in, Andrew walks in, turns back, and I'm like, what? He's like, I'm not going to be a part of this. And I walk in, and it's this little like six-by-six bathroom with a toilet, a urinal, a sink, and it looked like there had used to be a stall, like stalls, like a stall, but it had been torn out or something. And there's a homeless man sitting on the toilet going to the bathroom, Okay. And for some reason, if there was ever a this doesn't look like an open door moment, that was it. And yet my buddy starts talking to him, and I start talking to him, and, and, and we're like, how you doing, man? You don't look like you're doing too great. He's like, yeah, it's been a hard day. We're like, what's going on? He's like, I ran out of toilet paper. And we're like, oh my gosh, like, you're just literally sitting here, and like, no one's probably talked to you? And like, yeah. And so my buddy leaves. He goes to the front. He goes, hey, Jose, can we get some toilet paper for my buddy? And so I'm in the bathroom alone with this guy, by the way. And, and so we're talking, and it is normal, you know? And he's literally sitting on the toilet, going to the bathroom. And, and just, you know, what do you love to do, and this and that, and you're married, and I don't know, and, uh, and, and then so we go, and we buy him a double Whopper and a shake, and we sit, and we just have dinner with him, and we just talk and ask him, what, what, do, you, what do you love, and, and, and do, you, do you know about God, or what's your background with faith, and we just shared the gospel, this is who Jesus is, this is how he changed our life, this is how he can change your life, it was amazing, ask him what he, it was such a fulfilling conversation, and I'm telling you, if there was ever a closed door, like, that one might have had a deadbolt on it, and we pushed through, I don't know, but it was amazing. So again, don't reject the gospel for people. Let them reject it. When's it optimal to share the gospel? When someone will listen, right? So here's, here's just a call before we move on to the next essential. 
In Paul's life with this open door, the idea, I want you to drill in this idea, share no matter your where. Share no matter your where. There's an open door where you are, right? So share and see what God does. In Philippians 1, in another book that Paul writes, uh, just I think before this, um, Paul explains that while he's in prison, People are coming to know Jesus. The guards are. Can you picture these big, brute Roman guards that are calloused and hardened, and they've got spears, and they're just standing out like in front of Paul's like, prison cell, and Paul puts his face up to the bars and goes, hey, guys, I got an amazing story for you. Shh. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus came, and, and, he, and he died, and he rose again, and he's the only He's God, and he's the only son of God. And actually, if you place your faith in him, he'll save you forevermore. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to get back. No, it's just, and, shh, and he kept saying it. And he kept saying, guess what? They came to know Jesus. And he's literally celebrating that people came to know Jesus. They couldn't shut him up. There was nothing they could do. There's no place they could put him. He just couldn't stop sharing about Jesus. Share no matter your where. So if you're in prison, share the gospel. Okay, if you're in Walmart checking out, share the gospel, right? If you're uh, sitting across from your coworker and there's a conversation happening, share the gospel. If you're sitting at dinner this Thanksgiving with your family, share the gospel, right? If you're, if you're um, talking to your neighbor about Christmas lights and what you're going to do, share the gospel. It should be on our lips. So the question or the statement here is if you're waiting for gospel opportunities to come to you, you're wasting opportunities that are right in front of you. Third, third essential is in the rest of verse 3 and in verse 4. He says, uh, open door for us, for the word, to what? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Okay? So the third essential is clarity. And what we normally walk in is a confusing gospel. A confusing gospel. Here's how we generally fail at that. So here's the tagline. If you're having a hard time explaining... They're having a hard time understanding, okay? What's the, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the seats or something like that. Like, if I'm not clear, you definitely aren't clear, right? It's the same way when we talk. Now, what's unique in this is it feels like a paradox to me because he goes, declare the mystery of Christ, but then he says, make it clear. Those two things seem different, right? Mystery, clarity. Mystery, clarity. Those two things seem like they're not related. But Paul says, I need to make this mystery clear. What's the mystery? I think it's a lot of things because it's not explicit in here, but specifically one of them. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is sharing with these Jewish religious leaders, and they're listening and they're engaged. And in verse 21, he mentions the Gentiles, which are people that aren't Jewish, okay? And they freak out, and they're livid, and they're so mad. And in verse 22, it says they listened until he mentioned the Gentiles. So the mystery to them, the thing they couldn't understand was that God in his grace in his sovereignty, in his choosing, would not just choose Jews, but would choose non-Jews to invite into his family to save. And this is crucial for them because up until this, till Jesus, it was like Jews were God's chosen people. Now he's expanding the family out and people are confused by it. Okay? So that was confusing to them. Is it confusing to you that God doesn't just save Jews? Not at all. I doubt any of you are Jewish, right? Like, and so that's not a mystery of Christ anymore today, but it was to them. So my question is, what is confusing about the gospel today? What doesn't make sense about Jesus in today's culture? I think two things really quick. Number one is that you can't save yourself. 
Number one that is so confusing to our culture is that you can't save yourself. Americans hate this idea. We live in a if there's a will, there's a way culture, which is great. It produces hard work and all that stuff. But they need, people need to know, you need to make it clear in your gospel conversation that you have zero ability to save yourself. You did nothing to merit God coming down to rescue you. You have no part in salvation. Right? Jonathan Edwards, the famous theologian, said the only uh, thing you did in salvation was making, having the sin that made it necessary. Right? There's this idea here. You need to be clear about that. Number two, you need, what's confusing to our culture is that we get free grace without earning. Free grace without earning. Faith alone. We, especially in the Midwest, we're an earning culture. I mean, have you ever t- seen someone go, don't, don't give me that. I, I can't accept that. We're people that like reject gifts in our culture because we want to work for them. It's widespread and it plays out spiritually. No, 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 no. I can't just accept free grace. I need to earn it. I need to prove that I've deserved it. And yet Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says it's a free gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. You had it free. You need to make those two things very clear when you share the gospel. Second question here is how do we tend to confuse the gospel then? Here's what we need to be clear about. How do we tend to confuse it? Two things. I think sadly for a lot of us, we don't know the gospel. And I'm saying this in as loving a way as I can, but you would be shocked how many conversations I have with people. And, uh, and I go, hey, well, share the gospel with me. Or what was the gospel to you about Jesus? And they kind of just go, uh, uh, well, I, was, I grew up in this church and my dad was an elder, and I got confirmed at this age, and I went on a mission trip at this age, and I started coming to City Light two years ago, and I really love it, and it's really fun. And I'm like, oh, all oh, that's awesome. I didn't ask for your church background. I asked about you and Jesus. I asked about the gospel. And, I just, and, I, and it's scary to me because I'm going, there, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there has never been a Sunday for over four years of our church's existence that we haven't explicitly preached the gospel. And I'm going, how does it not translate to all, everybody? And I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or like, oh, no. this is just a reality. I had a real difficulty young in my faith to explain what the gospel actually is, right? So I just think so many of us don't really know the gospel. Maybe you haven't experienced it. Maybe you think it's because we live in a fairly Christian society in some ways in the Midwest that you just assume it's just your way of life. It's not. It's about you and Jesus and the good news that a good God came to rescue bad people like you and me. So second way we confuse it is we make it about stuff rather than Jesus. We make the gospel other stuff rather than Jesus. So have you heard gospel imitations where it's like, don't you want a family? Like we say, like the gospel is about community. Like, don't you want people that love you and that you can be a part of that family and, the, and you can call in the middle of the night and this can be amazing? And, and, and by the way, don't you, don't you want purpose in your life? Like you, you're so aimless right now. You can have purpose. You can have a direction you're running after. And by the way, aren't you sick of struggling with those same things? You can be free. You can be transformed. Now, to be clear, City Light, our community and purpose and transformation, part of the benefit that Jesus gives us in the gospel, absolutely. I hope all those things are true. But is that the gospel? No, it's not. The gospel is that God, a perfect holy God, wants to be in relationship with you, a broken sinner. That's the glory of it. That's the beauty of it. So when we confuse the gospel by making it about all these other things, which are byproducts, and they're great byproducts, we have sold a false gospel, and people are running after community and purpose and transformation rather than Jesus. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's the same idea of heaven. Like, the thing that we love about heaven isn't that we're never, we're going to live for eternity and it's going to be great, no tears. It's that we get to be with Jesus. So let's make sure we don't confuse the gospel for other stuff. 
Now, I know that some of you are hearing this right now, that we're supposed to make the gospel clear, and you're naturally withdrawing and going, then I'm not going to share the gospel, because I'm probably not super quick to share the gospel very clearly. That's a lazy excuse. I love you, but don't think that, okay? It's a lazy excuse, right? Nobody starts off amazing at sharing the gospel. I've had cringy moments stumbling across my words. I probably said some blasphemous things, okay? But guess what? I'm telling you, in the early days of my faith, sharing the gospel when I wasn't probably super clear, God actually, just through this faith, saved more people than I think he does now in my professional ability to share the gospel. It's crazy. So experience the cringy moments. You got to, the best way to share the gospel is by sharing the gospel. Like you just got to learn and do it and watch God continue to shape you. And by the way, everyone's got to start somewhere. My daughter, and don't, don't say that you can't articulate the gospel clearly because you can. My daughter at two years old, Gracie, this isn't like a brag on we're great parents. She could articulate the gospel better than I could at 21 years old, at two years old. And I just want to give a shout out to the kids' ministry downstairs. Uh, For anyone that serves in the kids' ministry consistently, that is not a daycare where we're feeding your kids goldfish and they're counting the animals in Noah's Ark, okay? Like, it's a real gospel community. My daughter, at two years old, comes home, little, sweet, cute Gracie, in her voice where she couldn't even pronounce the words right. We're like, what'd you learn at church? God rules. Oh, really? What's that mean? God rules. Like, that's all she really knew. I'm like, okay. And so you want to hear just an explanation of the gospel in kids' terms? For those of you who serve in the kids, you know this. Number one, God rules. God created you. The gospel starts with God, not you. He created. He pursued. He's not a distant creator. He's a personal, intimate father. Number two is that we sin. There's bad news and a lot of that good news. We sin. We have rebelled against this holy, loving, beautiful God. We have sinned and ran away from him. And that sin has a penalty, which is separation from God. But the good news is that it didn't stop there. He didn't give us what we deserve. He sent his son, Jesus. So God rules. We sin. Next is God provided. So God sent his son, Jesus, his only son. Brett mentioned in John 3 that Jesus actually came. God is not only a creating father, but he's an intimate father, and he didn't want to spend eternity apart from having uh, rebellious sinners rescued into his family. And so he sent his son to die for you, live a perfect life. Uh, uh, Four is that uh, Jesus, Jesus gives. Jesus gives. So God rules, we sin, God provided, uh, Jesus gives. And there's this idea that it's not just this invitation to really good people. Jesus gives salvation by faith alone to anybody who would call on his name. We're talking about that next week. This beautiful gospel is invitation that Jesus is giving you the gift of eternal life. And lastly, I forgot this at the last gathering, is we respond. Okay, so there's a response that is in, in light of uh, what he's done. We respond in faith and go, Jesus, you're amazing. I want you. I want to give my whole life to you, right? There's the gospel. So if you're talking to your neighbors and you're doing this, that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, that's all right. But there's a clear picture of the gospel that a two-year-old could remember and articulate. This is really important to understand, right? Best way to learn to share the gospel, number one, make sure you've experienced it. Don't try and share what you don't actually know. Make sure you've trusted in Jesus. That's the best thing you could ever do. Give your life over to him, and it'll flow out naturally. And number two, just start sharing the gospel. So tagline, if you're having a hard time explaining, they're having a hard time understanding. Fourth is verse five. So uh, almost done. Verse five, he goes, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So here, the essential is congruency. Congruency, right? That where we normally fall is contrary living. So here's the tagline. If your life doesn't match your lips, 
you've lost your leverage. If your life doesn't match your lips, you've lost your leverage. So he says in here two things, walk in wisdom uh, and then toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So walk in wisdom is your daily contact, conduct, the way you hold yourself, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you act, the aura that you put off, all that. Like the walk in wisdom is the way we're supposed to walk. In what direction are we walking in wisdom? Toward outsiders, towards people who don't look like us and act like us and think like us and do the things we do. We're supposed to be walking in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of, these, of this time and opportunity. Okay, so I'm going to teach you two words that you might not know, and it's what the Colossian church is falling into, and I think what we can fall into. Number one was syncretism, syncretism. Okay, so on three, let's say syncretism together. One, two, three, syncretism. All right, it's important because I think so many of us have fallen into this. Here's what syncretism is. In Colossae, this city, there, where the church is and where the people are and where it's planted and where it's growing, what was happening is that it's, they're surrounded by different cultures, different cultures, different religions, different thought processes, different worldviews. And what was happening was people were starting to adopt these different worldviews. Christians were starting to live very similar. It's basically like they blended in all these cultures. That's what syncretism is. I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and I'm going to add it to Christianity. But the problem was you could no longer distinguish Christians from non-Christians. There, there was no distinction. You could look at a room and go, I literally can't tell by the way you dress or the way you talk or the way you hold yourself or what you talk about. I can't tell. You've blended in that syncretism. And that's a problem because in Romans 12 too, Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The second thing they fell into is called sectarianism. Sectarianism. Okay, so let's say that on three, sectarianism. One, two, three, sectarianism. All right, it's really important for you to understand too. This is, I don't think we fall into this as much, but some of us might have or maybe do. This is the idea of anything that isn't explicitly Christian is bad. So I'm not going to go to the newest uh, James Bond movie that they're making. I'm just going to watch Fireproof again. It's like, it's a great movie, but again, you know what I mean? Is that, uh, yeah, 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 I'm doing Chase and the Giant. Whatever it is, like, God's Not Dead 2 just came out. It's like, that, those are awesome, but like, in, we, we just avoid any sense of thing that isn't explicit Christian. I'm not going to go to the Taylor Swift concert down at Pinnacle Bank Arena. I'm just going to listen to Chris Tomlin tonight and Michael W. Smith. It's like, now, are those two guys awesome? Yeah, but listen to Taylor Swift. Like, you know, and so what's happened was people were separating themselves away from culture, and they were living in their own isolated bubbles. But what does that mean? You can't live out, verse 5, if you're not towards outsiders. So, and, and, and Jesus, he prays against that. In John 17, verse 15, he says, I don't pray you take them from the world, but you keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. So friends, we've got to be in the world, around outsiders, but still being set apart by Jesus that we're distinct, right? So those are the two. So great example of walking in wisdom. There's a guy named Dr. William Houghton. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute until he died in the 1940s. Great dude. He was a pastor in Atlanta before that, uh, or a little while before that. And when he went to go take the pastorate, someone hired a private detective to look over him and watch him and make sure that his preaching matched his lifestyle. So this private detective watched him for weeks. And at the end of his uh, observation, he concluded that Dr. Houghton's life did indeed match his preaching. And guess what the private detective did? Gave his life to Jesus. Is that crazy? That's walking in wisdom. Like, would someone give their life to Jesus if they watched you for a month? 
I hope so. I don't know. They'd probably see some messed up things about me, but I hope I love Jesus. And they're like, you know what? I'm broken like him too. You know, it doesn't mean you're walking perfect, but you're walking in wisdom towards God. A bad example of it that was probably parented in, one of my buddies that accepted Jesus uh, in college was convinced that he wanted to go to the bars downtown and share the gospel. He goes, these people on Saturday nights, never going to come to church on Sundays. I want to be a missionary to them. I thought, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Go ahead and do it, you know, young, impressionable Christians that are all excited in college. And so, uh, so he goes. Every Friday, Saturday, he goes, and he came home, and I'm praying for him, and he comes home, and he's belligerently drunk taking an Uber with some De Leon's taquitos. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, yeah, man, I shared the gospel and this happened. And I was sharing with all these people and they're around and they were listening and everyone's nodding their head. Wow. A couple months go by. Hey, man, has anyone been saved? Have you seen anybody like actually give their lives to Jesus? No, I don't know what's happening. Oh, I think I know what's happening. They don't know what to believe. You know what I mean? They're, they're at the, it's like, oh, that's so cool. But you've compromised your witness because you're not walking in wisdom. Your life doesn't match your lips, and they don't know what in the world to think. Congruency means in, in agreement or harmony. And I think that for a lot of us, we have a Friday night version of ourselves and a Sunday morning version of ourselves, right? And, and then the people we're hanging out with Friday night we're inviting on Sunday morning, and they're looking at you, and they're seeing you get your worship on, open up your Bible, and they're like, what's going on right here? I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to think. Or your neighbors are hearing you yell at your wife or not talk to anybody else, and then you're like, come to church, and they're so confused by it because your life doesn't match up. And if we want to be effective at sharing the gospel, we need to make sure our life matches our lips, right? It's so crucial. So if your life doesn't match your lips, you've lost your leverage. And last, the fifth essential is in verse 6. He says, he concludes by saying, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What he's calling us to here, the last one, is passion. And where we generally fail is Christians have stale speech, okay? So here's the tagline. If people don't think you believe what you're wanting them to believe, they'll never believe it. If people don't think that you believe what you're wanting them to believe, they'll never believe it, right? So he says, let your speech always be two things. Number one, let it be gracious. Now, this word gracious is synonymous with the word winsome, which is attractive or appealing. Um, Now, I'll never forget that same summer uh, with Burger King incident. Uh, We were leaving and uh, on the way back to Lincoln, and we stopped by Las Vegas to check it out. And in Las Vegas, you know, Sin City, there was all these street preachers. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, I didn't expect this. But all the guys were saying something like, Jesus is coming back, repent and believe. Over and over again. Jesus is coming back, repent and believe. Now, question for you, City Light, is that true? Yeah, it's true. Jesus is going to come back, and our response should be to repent and believe. But was it effective? I don't think so. You know, it, wasn't, it didn't align with verse 6. It wasn't gracious. It wasn't appealing. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't winsome. It was just so the message was right, the delivery was wrong, right? Now, I want to be clear. Does God use street preachers? Absolutely. I think their faith is amazing, and I'm sure people are getting saved. Is it the most effective way? Probably not. Second thing he says is your, grace, your speech should be seasoned with salt. Now, salt in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, didn't come in little nice packets or shakers. It was primarily used as a preservative or a fertilizer, but here he says it's used as a seasoning, so in a way that we would normally use it. Now, another word for seasoning or this word expanded means to make it interesting, to make something interesting, right, as like a condiment or a seasoning. Now, 
Question, is the gospel in itself interesting? Oh, I hope you're shaking your head. Yes, it is. The most interesting reality in the world that a good God would come after broken people like you and me. But can we make it less interesting by how we communicate it? You bet we can, right? Uh, How many of you guys think back to your high school career, can think of the most boring class you ever had? They're thinking about it right now, maybe science, maybe biology, maybe math, I don't know, or history. Well, mine was history. Any other history people, they were like, that was super, super boring. I hated it. I couldn't stay awake. But then what was crazy was the next year I had another history class, and it became my favorite class. You ever had that happen? Same topic, similar content, different teacher. My point is, you can be talking about the same thing, but it, it relies on the communicator and, its effect, and their effectiveness. To, it can be interesting. History is objectively interesting. So is the gospel. We can make it less interesting. Now, I'm sure some of you guys aren't surprised by this, but most of my life before I got into ministry, I was a salesman. Worked at the Buckle for four or five years, clothing store, and I worked at Sandoz Publishing here in Lincoln for two years. And uh, I remember my interview in the HR. This is very common in the sales world. They handed me a pen, and they said, sell this to me, okay? Now, my knee-jerk, and most of my knee-jerk would go, oh, this pen is the best. I mean, the grip, your hand would never cramp, and look how it writes. It's so smooth, and everyone's going to awe and ooh at it. It's a great pen. You would love this pen. I'm telling you, we have a special today. It's $19.99, normally $50. You know, that's what we think. And a mentor of mine told me, no, 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 the best salesman, the best communicators of something don't actually sell something. They get to know the person. And so rather than going, here's all the things about the pen, you know what they say? How long have you been looking for a pen? What kind of pens do you normally use? How often do you use a pen? Have you ever had a favorite pen? And what was it about that pen that made it your favorite, right? Now, I want to be explicitly clear. We don't sell Jesus, okay? That's not the Christian's role to sell Jesus, but we are communicating him effectively. In order to do that, really practically, ask questions to the people you're sharing with. Don't come in with a script and go, uh, my name is uh, um, Aaliyah, and uh, Jesus Christ loves you, and he wants you eternally. And It's like you can say all the right things, but if it's not a relationship, we're going, actually, tell me about yourself. What have you struggled with? What's hard right now? What's been the best day of your life? Like asking those questions. So get practical. Get to know the person. It's not sharing the gospel isn't reading a script. It's a relationship that's seasoned with salt, and it's gracious. Now, in closing, I want to remind you, church, if you're saved This is how Jesus reached you. If you've come to know Jesus, these five things are how Jesus reached you. In John 17, Jesus spends the whole chapter praying. For who? For you. For intimacy, for protection, for unity together, Jesus prayed for you. And don't be mistaken, Jesus boldly pursued you. He came after you. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And friends, we weren't just an open, easy door to push open. We had the deadbolt. We had a lot of stuff going on, and he kicked it down, and he came after us, right? He boldly pursued you. Number three, he clearly preached his gospel. In Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, Jesus says, I've come to open blind eyes and set the captive free and seek justice. It's amazing. He clearly preached what he was about for. He lived a life that matched his preaching. In Luke uh, 23, verse 4, Pilate is interrogating him, and he goes, I have no charge to bring against Jesus. He was perfect, and he never compromised his witness. And number five, Jesus spoke with passion and intrigue. In Luke 4, verse 32, Jesus gets done talking. He says they were astonished at his word that had authority. If you are saved, Jesus, this is how, this is what he did to make the gospel pierce your heart and its goodness. He prayed, he boldly came after, he clearly preached, he lived his life 
congruent with his teaching, and, and uh, he spoke with passion. And so, friends, don't we want that story to be repeated through our lives? Don't we want to see more people meet Jesus, the best news ever? And if that's you, the way we're going to do it is by God's grace, right? And so, City Light, let's be dependent in prayer, bold in pursuit, clear in the gospel, congruent in our living, and passionate in our talking. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Five points is a lot, and yet, Jesus, it's amazing to see uh, people with their Bibles out, with their journals out, taking notes, God. And I just trust uh, that this conversation we're having this morning isn't just going to end with a sweet notebook that's marked up, but I really pray that it produces real life change, that people in the room know that we're called to share the gospel, that they should leverage their lives to just naturally talk about you, Jesus. They'd see people get saved, and that you'd make us effective in sharing the gospel, that you'd actually transform people's lives through us, and that we get more excited, and we get addicted to sharing the gospel and seeing lives transformed. God, would you do that? And just for anyone in the room that hasn't trusted in Jesus, that's been stiff-arming you, Jesus, I pray right now, as I prayed before this gathering, and I'm praying during the sermon, and I'm praying right now, God, you're the only one that can open blind eyes. You're the only one who can save a lost soul. You're the only one who can redeem a broken life. And so I'm praying right now, Jesus, that whoever in here hasn't trusted you would go, I'm done running. I'm done stiff-arming. I want you, Jesus. I'll accept this free grace. I'll accept the reality that I can't save myself and that you've came to come to save me when I was still sinning, Jesus. Would you save people? Would you reproduce this, God? Would you change our city and our families and our neighborhoods and our dorm rooms because this is true, that you're God's. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.